the individual choices that each of the states are going to make to best fit the needs of their state are going to make it kind of impossible to have a one size fits all. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Christopher Mitchell at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance in St. Paul, Minnesota. And if I'm a little distracted today, it's because I'm going camping and I'm really excited to get away from my computer. (laughs) So, but I'm even more excited uh, to have a relevant show because I'll tell you the truth. We ran the risk of, uh, of picking a rerun to run for next week until Christine Parker was telling me about uh, what we know about the challenge process and how that's updated. And so Christine at the last second volunteered uh, to come on the show to update us from what we talked about a bit in episode 555 with Alexis Shruby. Uh, so welcome, Christine, senior GIS and analyst on the Community Broadband Networks team. Thanks, Chris. And then you uh, somehow uh, convinced Megan on minutes notice, uh, Megan Grable, the uh, geospatial analyst for the Maine Connectivity Authority, to join us as well. So thank you so much, Megan. Thank you for having me. Uh, I am excited to uh, learn more about uh, exactly what's going on now that we have, I think, a more definitive understanding of what NTIA plans to do, although I understand that there's still a lot of unanswered uh, questions. Before we jump into that, though, I did want to note as I was doing my my customary five minutes of preparation uh, leading up to this, I was reading an article in State Scoop, uh, which is one of the few that has written about the NTIA's challenge process in the in the past week or so. Uh, not a lot of coverage out there, from what I could tell. Um, you know, I was checking out Benton headlines and others, and they if people had written about it, I feel like they would have found it. Um, and I noted uh, in that in an article in State Scoop, it said that some states, and it listed Hawaii, Louisiana, Maine, Utah, and Virginia, have already published their first volumes for public feedback, uh, which is part of that process that they have to do um, take public comment on their plans before they submit their initial proposal to NTIA. And that suggests to me that many of us thought in talking to a few state broadband folks that it would be really December before we saw states submitting their plans. Uh, now, I would say that it does seem like it's clear that some states are going to be aggressive and trying to get their initial proposals in very early, uh, much earlier than we thought might be likely. So uh, just a little update there from what uh, you know I'm seeing out there. I don't know if um, if Megan, if you have anything, you know, if you have any perspective on that from what you've seen of of Maine or other states, or Christine, if you've seen anything um, along those lines. Um, so for Maine, we um, got our broadband action plan out. Uh, we had our public comment period, and we've gotten it back, and we're doing our revising right now. We plan to submit that August first, and then the digital equity plan. Um, we released that at the same time for public comment, but we're holding that until September first for submission. Is kind of our plan right now, uh, and so that that's setting us up for initial proposal volume one in December. To submit it in December. Correct. Okay, so that's why I'm confused, I guess. If you already have it out for public comment, um, because I had seen some comment where I thought Louisiana was trying to get theirs in well early, but um, it's such a, I know that it is a very complex process, but um, do you think some states will be able to get it in much earlier than December 1st? Well, it's two separate things, right? You have the broadband action plan, and then you have the initial proposal. The broadband action plan, is that the five-year plan or is that separate? Okay. That's the five-year plan. Thank you. Yeah. So that one's first. And then the initial proposal. However, Virginia, I believe, released both at the same time for public comment. And so 
uh, their public comment period is over as far as I understand, and they are ready to submit. Um, I haven't heard that they actually submitted yet. And I think Louisiana, yep, same, trying to hit a really aggressive timeline. But we've heard from some of our other state partners that they are taking a slower approach to it, um, right? Because once you submit your initial proposal and you get approval on volumes one and two, that starts the clock ticking for when you have to submit your final proposal, mm -hmm. which is when you have to have all of your subgrantees selected. And that is a very giant lift that everybody <laughs> wants to be very prepared for and very right, ready to be able to execute on that process because 365 days is short. <laughs> Here again, I did not do close enough reading uh, of the NOFO, perhaps, but are you so one year after you get your initial proposal approved, um, at that point, you have one year to do your final proposal. Are you saying that you have to know everyone you're granting money to before you get 80% of the dollars? Yes. In the final proposal, yep. All the subgrantees have to be tentatively selected. Wow. Um, <laughs> That's crazy. I mean, like, cause I, I guess, I mean, it makes sense from a perspective of just trying to get money out there as fast as possible, but it does not make a lot of sense from a perspective of being able to adjust over the years based on how sub grantees are doing or allowing the, some of the smaller ones to be able to spend that money and then come back for more and things like that, I guess, learn something new every day. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I really decided that I was not going to turn this into a show where Chris is complaining all the time about uh, frustrations with this process and how I, I, I feel it's perhaps not um, ideal for the sub grantees that are envisioned by the people who are making the rules. Uh, but um, but at any rate, we want to talk about the challenge process. Uh, and so let me turn to you, Christine, to ask you um, to tell us roughly uh, how it works. Like NTIA is trying to make it easy on states, I, I gather. And so what is NTIA providing to states so that they can develop a successful challenge process? And tell us what a challenge process is, I guess. Yeah, so the, the challenge process is um, somewhat like the FCC's federal, like their federal challenge process where folks were asked to um, look at the, the national broadband map and um, make sure that their address information was correct, make sure that their, the provider service availability at their address was correct. And so it's kind of a similar process, but this is just going to be um, based on a map that the state is sharing. And so in this process, the state is able to um, accept some different or adapt some different modules, um, they're calling them, um, that would allow them to alter um, the designation or classification of locations prior to this um, state level challenge process. For example, one is um, a DSL module where uh, any location with that is considered like served by DSL would be then considered, I think, unserved or underserved. There are these different modules that states can adopt depending on their circumstances and, and needs to um, influence how the challenge process is going to work and what locations, what the classification of locations will be in that final list that is presented to um, residents. So if I understand correctly, then basically... Uh, it's up to the state, for instance, whether or not they want to say per se, no DSL is considered served. NTIA, is it true that NTIA is saying basically, but if you want to do that, here's how you have to do it. Like, here's a bucket of rules that go along with that. If you want to say this, we're not saying you have to say this, but if you do say this, here's how you do it. 
Yeah, and there, you know, in some of these instances, there's still some question on the details of it. Um, so that's something that, uh, like, folks in the National Broadband Mapping Coalition have been talking about um, is maybe coming up with some additional suggestions or um, maybe an, an option, an additional module um, to tack on to this to kind of further refine what what we would recommend states do um, as we move forward. Uh, about how many modules are we talking about? I think currently there's only three modules. Okay, so it's not like there's 20. I was I was just trying to get a sense of ballpark. <laughs> no. Yeah. Um, the DSL one, the speed test one, and then they grouped the area and the MDU one together now um, into a module. Okay, so let's go through them. What is the uh, MDU module that is now, you say, area module also? What Explain what that is, if you don't mind, Megan. If there are more than six challenges in a census block group, um, that would trigger the entire, all BSLs in that group um, as challenged. And then that puts the burden of proof on the provider um, that was challenged with those six challenges that they have to prove it for the entire census block group. Um, that they're showing in the national broadband map is correct. Okay. And we're going to come back and talk more about that toward the second half of the show. Uh, what is the MDU module? So the MDU is for the multi-dwelling units. Apartment buildings. Correct. Yep. The fabric, they're one point, um, but they might have multiple. Well, they do have multiple um, units in each one. And so if at least three units or 10% of the unit count is challenged in an MDU, then the uh, entire MDU is challenged at that point. Okay. And then what was the last module that we haven't talked about yet? Speed test module, just conceptually, uh, what is that? Speed test module is where a consumer has taken three speed tests on so many consecutive days um, and found that I think it was like 80% <laughs> uh, their scores are 80% below what is shown on the national broadband map for speed. Um, and if the median of those three scores is below that 80%, then that's a sufficient challenge, um, which is a cool add since speed testing isn't part right of the FCC's version other than as like a crowdsource challenge, which isn't our direct availability challenges. This so, sounds like um, actually like figure skating where, yeah. um, you know, you, you do, I mean, if they, if they made them do the routine three times, I guess it's not quite, it's not, a, it's not a perfect analogy, but you drop the high score, you drop the low score. And is it within 80% of the advertised on the national broadband map? And um, I mean, that's, that's actually at least understandable. I think if you get away from the lingo. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yep. Take three speed tests uh, and see what happens. <laughs> within the right within the right time frame. Actually, the, the time frame, they removed the time frame for residents um, for oh, the okay. submission part, portion. Um, but uh, I believe they tacked that on to the ISP side of things. So that is when they are going to be doing their testing. Right. And that makes sense because... Um, it's in the interest of the homeowner or the, the, the user. I'm just struggling not to say consumer. I hate that word when it comes to the internet. Um, when it comes to the, the subscriber has an interest in doing the speed test at the time when the link is the most congested, uh, they are supposed to still be getting those speeds during that time. But if you're not getting those speeds at 3 AM, well, then you also have an even bigger problem probably. <laughs> so. Right. And I think also in the interest of just getting 
people to be able to do this in consecutive days, like it's a hard, it's a hard lift. Not everybody is going to remember to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that yeah. was a good change. The time frame before was kind of like evening hours, right? Like six to 11 PM or something, which also as we're having our partners help and interact, you know, six to 11 PM isn't really the time that they're necessarily doing business. Um, so it's also helpful to have that window opened up for assistance. Yes. Although for, for people's, um, uh, interest, if people are interested, the typically the highest peak time for networks, uh, for residential networks is Sunday night and Monday night. For some reason, that's when, I don't know, the most streaming happens and things like that. The most consecutive people are using, uh, the network. So, um, that's my understanding when I talk to different ISPs, uh, operating in trivia. Yeah. Um, maybe that will be future trivia. We'll see. Um, the, um, so, uh, let's talk about the timing of this then. Um, when we talked before about this, if my memory serves, the challenge process will be something that comes into play likely, uh, in, um, I would say like, you know, second quarter of 2024, perhaps in Virginia in the first quarter of 2024, after States have a sense that they're nearly going to get the money, they need to go through the challenge process and the timing of it is important important because they don't want the challenge process to delay handing out the money, I'm guessing. One other thing that I wanted to include for sure that people knew is that, um, and to make sure I got this right, um, this is not about locations anymore. We're done with locations. Like everything we're talking about here cannot change whether or not a location is on the map. The states cannot add locations or subtract locations through this process. Right. Right. It's just about Most whether or not they have service. Process. Oh, come on, Megan, you're going to kill me here. <laughs> There's an exception. So we are being encouraged, right, to use the most up-to-date uh, version of the map. And so if you challenge in the FCC map and it gets added from one version to the next, right, mm. then you are getting new locations. Okay, so that would be a reason to get challenges, get those challenges in early to make sure the FCC has a chance. Um, but from the purpose of this challenge process, as these rules are written, um, states are not supposed to be using this to add or remove BSLs, broadband serviceable locations from the map in terms of whether they exist. It's just about the level of service that is at those locations. Right. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So people won't have the option to say, actually, my house isn't showing up on here or it's incorrect or something like that. Right. And people will say that and they'll be correct about that. But we're sorry, there's a whole different process to deal with that. It's going to take some Go time. to the national broadband map for that. <laughs> yes. OK, so what is the timing then of dealing with our fight over whether or not a given location has the service that is being advertised uh, to, to it? Um, so the whole process um, from starting the initial like starting the challenge process and opening that window um, to sending that final list of uh, challenged locations to NTA and having those submitted is 120 days. Um, Three months. So pretty short. Four months. Mm-hmm. Three, four months? Four months. I can do math. Even in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> you have four months, basically. Yep. Within the challenge process itself, there's uh, like a couple, like minimum of 14 days. So challenges have to be submitted for a minimum of 14 days. Um and then rebuttals also have to be um, allowed for about 14 days. <laughs> so let's talk about it in terms of how it starts. What's the what's the opening salvo of the challenge process likely to be, Megan? So state broadband offices have to publish uh, their determination on what are the eligible locations. So the unserved, underserved, and served. 
brought to create that list of eligible locations, the states have to go through all of the steps. So there is the deduplication. And this is before the window starts, the 120 This is before the window starts, right. Yep. So we announce whatever version of the map that we're going to be using from the national broadband map. And then the deduplication. So you have to identify where there's been any um, funding awarded in the past. Uh, so RDOF locations or the broadband infrastructure program, those ones come off and those ones are no longer eligible. States have to get together their list of CAIs, uh, community anchor institutions, and um, what they're including in that list. We're given, um, I think, six or seven bullet points for definitions of what's included as a CAI. However, states can add additional ones. Um, and then we have to assess at each of those locations whether they have gigabit speeds or not. Uh, because those are right eligible for bead funding if they don't have uh, the proper speed. Okay, so there's a series of steps that are preparatory to to making sure you're ready. And then the state says publicly, we got three buckets. Here's all the unserved locations. Here's all the locations that are underserved, meaning they have more than 25, three megabits per second uh, down and up. And then uh, they have less than 120 megabits, um, uh, you know, down and up. And then uh, and then here are the locations that we consider to be fully served. Those locations that probably have either a very high quality wireless product or um, a licensed wireless product, I suppose, or a um, or a fiber or cable connection, most likely. And then that kicks off the wrangling about whether or not those three buckets have the right addresses in them. And so um, some people will be wanting to fix that. Now, I don't know if this breaks apart the timeline issue. But Christine, you were mentioning yesterday that uh, it's not like an individual homeowner is able to just reclassify, right? Like to say, oh, you got me wrong. And the state doesn't have to deal with individual people, uh, which I think is helpful from the state's point of view, but adds another real challenge to, to actual people who are paying attention on their own. Yeah, there's kind of like this little sidestep in the challenge process wherein states are not States are not receiving the individual challenges. It is going to be um, government, small like smaller local governments and um, nonprofit organizations that are collecting the challenge data um, through some portal of some kind that is yet yet to be determined. Um, it sounds like states are generally unsure yet how how that's going to occur, but. Um, and then uh, those organizations submit the data to the state. Yeah, it, it sounds like from what I was hearing uh, yesterday, there are some states that are considering, you know, they have a portal already set up. Um, so that heavy lift is done and they will collect the data, then give it to the nonprofits or whatever organizations they're collaborating with, um, have them package it and send it back. That seems like the only way it would work. I just can't imagine what nonprofits are out there ready to step in and do this. I mean, like we're one that in theory would be one and I have no idea how we'd even go about doing it. Right. And then I also heard yesterday, the nonprofit has to be registered in the state that it is oh, even submitting better. challenge data for. So even though we are a national nonprofit. I we could do it in uh, DC where we're registered. That's where we were born 50 <laughs> years ago. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. 
it's just going to be, I, I'm not sure how that part is going to work. I know I, I have some friends that are really interested in working with states on, you know, like putting together a, a portal. Um, but I think because each state is going to have different needs and different modules that they're adopting, there's not going to be any single, like, single solution for that portal option. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how states handle that. Was this a was this a surprise to you, Megan? Like, or did you sort of see this coming? And do you, have, do you have, does Maine Connectivity Authority have a plan for how to go about dealing with it? Um, yeah, so we've been in the works um, developing a more robust analytics system, and this and the whole bead process um, has definitely been a driving factor behind um, needing to do that. At one point, really early on last year, there was maybe a hint that NTIA was going to have some sort of portal that states could use. Um, but once the challenge came out, they um, definitely said, no, that's it's not happening. Even knowing they were, they could have, may have created it, I don't think Maine would have used it. It just seems like the individual choices that each of the states are going to make to best fit the needs of their state are going to make it kind of impossible to have a one size fits all. However, I, there's quite a few GIS companies out there um, that are standing up platforms to help do this. So if a, you are a state that doesn't have uh, resources like Christine and myself um, to be uh, pushing the <laughs> pushing in a more uh, data-driven direction. Um, there's definitely a solution out there that you can purchase and um, make work for you. This is this is a, a great GIS-based cloud problem <laughs> that there are many mapping people that we've been waiting years for a great activity like this to do. Yes. So <laughs> this is our time to shine. That's right. <laughs> Uh, this reminds me of a conversation I had with uh, Tamara Holmes, who runs the Virginia office. Uh, and um, she it was episode 530. It was uh, back in November of 2022. And when I asked her about advice for other offices, uh, she said, hire a GIS data person, like at least one. <laughs> Yes. And um, and I think that that's important for people who might think, oh, I wish we had done that, but now it's not so important. No, it will be important moving forward as well. Like this is something that will continue to be an issue where um, it is, I have a expansive imagination in some sense and a very limited imagination in other sense. So when I say it is unimaginable to me that the FCC anytime soon will have accurate data that states can use, um, I could be wrong, but uh, I think I, we could also be here in 10 years saying, you know what, like the FCC is just never going to have good data on where high quality Internet access is. Um, uh, and so states need to take this seriously and not feel like, oh, we can get by without it. No, you need someone that can um, is, is comfortable like collecting this data and figuring out how to use it properly and things like that. Uh, so that's just my quick pitch <laughs> for every state to have someone that has the kind of skills that the both of you have uh, in their broadband office focused on this work. We use the analogy of um, highways and roads when we talk about internet work networks um, and the Department of Transportation, they have plenty of GIS people on hand. So it just makes sense that um, broadband offices would have GIS folks as well. Yeah, that's because states take roads seriously, because states are essential for commerce, <laughs> and they recognize that networks are essential for commerce, but they do not take them seriously. 
at this well, point. Now's the time to change. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Plenty of reasons now. <laughs> um, and, and Megan, you were describing how states could go different ways. And so that's to say that this challenge process in Maine could look very different than New Hampshire or other states that are in New England. Um, you know, we're going to see a lot of different approaches. And some of those different approaches may involve a different uh, approach to speed test data, for instance, I'm guessing. I don't even know really what that might look like, but I don't know if you have a sense if if either Christine or Megan, you can tell me how you could imagine two different states incorporating speed tests in different ways uh, in order to, again, to get back so people haven't lost the thread, to make sure that the, the addresses are correctly classified as having service or being underserved or unserved. States, I guess, kind of have three options speed tests or any of the modules in the um, challenge process. One is that you don't accept the module and so you have no speed testing whatsoever in your challenge process. Two is that you accept the module wholesale and um, put that into your process and you do it exactly the way that it's written. The third option and maybe the risky option is to alter it and come up with your own methodology for how they would be included. When you submit your volume one proposal, NTIA has the discretion to approve or ask for changes in it. Um, and so if you don't follow exactly as they have written, you're running the risk that they will not like it, right? <laughs> and either ask for changes or say, no, you absolutely can't do it that way. Um, and so then that's slowing down your process because yeah, it'll just take more time for them to do. So if you've got a timeline and you're uh, committed to sticking to that timeline, it's kind of a strategy, right? Trade-off. Like, thankfully, we have our uh, federal program officers and Maine has a great one. Um, and so we work with her quite a bit on some of these questions so that it wouldn't be like such a great surprise. Uh, like we can float some of these ideas mm -hmm. and kind of get a little feedback before we get to that point. So it's not just like you cross your fingers, <laughs> you submit it to the black box and then you see what happens. Like we are really well supported. <laughs> One of the things I could imagine, uh, I cannot imagine happening, I hope, uh, but uh, was an illustration of this, I think would be like if a state was to say, we're going to use Joe's speed test. Like we, we met this guy named Joe and he seems like he's a good guy. He's out of work. He has some time on his hands. He's developed a speed test for us and he's, you know, hosting it somewhere in, um, in the Arctic. And uh, we're going to use that speed test. <laughs> and then TIA would say, no, that's, that's unreasonable. Right. Yeah. <laughs> You're, you have to use a, a speed test that ha we have some sense is accurate. <laughs> yeah. I think there's, rigorous or robust or there's some word in there that um yeah your speed test has to meet uh the requirements mm -hmm. now the other question i'm wondering about is because it's 120 days i mean that's a fairly long time it's in everyone's interest is it from a process point of view possible that a state could say um to ntia you know kind of forecasting this is what we're going to well, let me put it differently if you just accept the module um, uh, rules that NTIA lays out, then in theory, you're not going to be arguing with them about it because that's already been approved. Does that mean you could start your challenge process before your initial plan was approved in order to be moving forward? Or are there other reasons that you have to wait to do your speed tests or to do your challenge process until after the initial process plan has been approved? You have to wait for volumes one and volume two to be approved by the NTIA okay. before you're allowed to start. So there is no way to hand out money within 120 days of receiving 
the 20% that comes after your initial plan is approved because you have 120 days in which you have to go through this challenge process. Not all states are going to ask for that initial 20%. Huh. That's an option too. Um, some states are just going to wait. My head exploding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, some states are just going to get through the process and then uh, get their full chunk of money um, with the final proposal. Huh. Is Maine going to do the 20% option? We were chatting about this yesterday. <laughs> um, I Yeah, I'm not sure where we're landing yet. There's a okay. lot of uh, questions that we're still kind of mulling around. Okay. All right. This is revelatory. All right. So one of the things we wanted to make sure we covered is how to be strategic. And this is where we'll talk a little bit more about the area challenges and why that is relevant. Um, perhaps it would be easiest, Christine, if I asked you how not to be strategic, like what would be a bad way to go about doing the challenge process and to use your resources ineffectively? I would say to not use any of the modules and just accept a default list of locations and uh, move forward that way um, is, you know, not ideal. That's a good point. So if you if if a state does that, does it really have a challenge process? Like, I mean, what mechanism would people have to challenge if there was would that just be ISPs would be arguing with each other about it? Or how would that work? Um, it would probably be more along the lines of like service availability. Like if if they had a bill demonstrating that they were that they were receiving some level of service and and they weren't like I, I think it's gonna be a less effectual form of a challenge. Mm -hmm. Um because they wouldn't have like a speed test option to be able to um, support that. They do have a whole list of um, like forms of evidence um, that you can use to support challenges like that. Um, I, I don't think it would be as valuable as having these additional modules involved. Right. I think I feel like it would be one thing you'd be sort of focused then on getting a letter from the ISP that says we cannot serve that location or something like that. Right. Um, mm -hmm. As yeah. opposed to arguing about the level of service being insufficient. Right. I think the, the modules are nice because they do put more uh, the, the burden proof is more on the ISPs rather than individuals. What's your recommendation for being strategic? Uh, so something I've been talking with folks lately about is um, focusing on these area challenges um, and working with, if you have historical, like relatively recent, but historical um, speed test data, using that to target areas that you could shift from uh, served to un underserved or underserved to unserved. Um, so areas where you would be able to make a difference um, and target your outreach for speed tests in those areas, rather than just trying to blanket approach outreach and get everybody in the state to participate because we know surveys are not going to be really effective in that way. You know, people are either not going to participate or they can't participate because they don't have internet at home and they don't wanna to have to drive somewhere to like submit whatever forms. Um, and so targeting on the areas where people need to participate, but also, um, keeping in mind the area challenge, um, you only need to get six locations. Um, so if you can focus on areas and get those six locations, you can get a whole census block group thrown into a challenge rather than just like a piecemeal um, individual challenge situation. Um, and so that's one way to, I think, approach this process and get larger swaths of area challenged 
um, and put that burden of proof on ISPs. If a state hasn't been collecting speed tests, the MLAB open data would be a place where one could look and try to find concentrations uh, where you would be uh, sort of having good fishing, you know, <laughs> exactly. a, um, good hunting. Yep, absolutely. Megan had a good point earlier when we were talking about more rural areas, you might have only six locations in a whole census block group. And so that strategy may be different. I guess one of our questions would be, does it have to be a census block group? Um, could it be based on density, larger areas for less dense areas and write it into our challenge process like that? Uh, those are the types of things that we're going to be investigating, kind of pressure testing with our FPO to see if if that sort of thing would be considered to make sure that Maine does the best challenge process for Maine. Christine, where is the best place for people to go to have more strategic conversations that may not be broadcast on open uh, podcasts that anyone can listen to? <laughs> um, I have a Discord channel that uh, has quite a few people in it now. Uh, it's called Broadband and Digital Equity Research. Um, we don't always talk about research. A lot of times we're talking about this <laughs> uh, challenge process or the state of the maps. Um, there's some venting in there if you just need to go and hear that other people are frustrated in the same ways that you are. But we do talk a lot about like the changing policy dynamics and um, it's a really good place to, to get up to speed pretty quickly. And remind us about the Marconi uh, organization, the the network. Also, the National Broadband Mapping Coalition. We have um, monthly meetings. Dustin Loop is our leader, and um, that's another really great meeting place to hear from experts in a variety of fields, from uh, consultants to state mapping folks to nonprofit mapping folks like myself. Wonderful. Any last thoughts, Megan? I wouldn't mention that our strategy uh, includes a lot of work that we've been doing and building up our partners around the state. So we have um, the main broadband coalition, as well as our regional and tribal broadband partners, people who can or groups that can participate do include uh, tribal government along with local government and the nonprofits. So we've really been boosting up uh, those groups of people so that as we get to the state challenge process and they're the groups that can participate, they have the resources that they need to be able to enhance our challenge process. Excellent. And yeah, Maine has been doing just tremendous work from the, the great organizations of your state, the, the broadband coalition uh, over the years. It's been a real model state that I feel like it'd be nice to see a case study of in the future for how a small state um, just really organized itself effectively to, to be well connected. So uh, thank you for joining us. And, uh, and I really appreciate your insights today. Absolutely. Thank you again for having me. Absolutely. And Christine, thanks for making this happen. Sure. Anytime. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this and other podcasts from ILSR, including Building Local Power, Local Energy Rules, and the Composting for Community podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ilsr.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount keeps us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. This was the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.